Well, Pastor Mark, this wraps up an awesome six weeks of Question Mark. We've shared a few laughs, had a few Kodak moments together. I'm getting kind of teary-eyed just thinking of it. I've learned an awful lot. I've learned an awful lot too, Pastor. I've had so much fun these past few weeks, I could just sing a song. It's the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone in the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. No, not that song, Pastor Mark, even though it is on my top five playlists on iTunes. I have my own song in mind, but I'm going to need your help on it. Starts with D, ends with go. Starts with D, ends with go. Trust me, Pastor, it'll be fun. Starts with D, ends with go. Trust me, Pastor. I can't help myself. Starts with D, ends with Coke. Starts with D, ends with Coke. Good point. Starts with D, ends with Coke. Are you kidding me? Hey! Hey! Like a ninja. Hey! Free, free, free! Like a ninja. Hey! Free, free, free! It's really I don't want to go shopping with you. I should be certifiably scared to ever go on stage again. Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, it's going to be a little different message today. I'm clearly going to be out of my comfort zone. If you're a new springer, you know that by seeing the lectern because I don't usually stand behind a lectern. It's not my style. I'm, I'm, you know, today's talk, you really should have a button-down wingtip guy to deliver the talk, and that's not me. I never was a great scholar. I've never claimed to be a scholar, but today's talk is going to require me to stay on the rails. Uh, I joke about this a lot because there are people that attend all four services here at New Spring uh, because I would consider my style sort of like extemporaneous freestyling. And, you you know, they say all four sermons are a little bit different. You never know when I'm going to go off the rails. But I need to keep this before me because I need to very much stay on the rails today. And the reason why we're going to get out of our comfort zone a little bit is because just the magnitude of the question that's been asked is a huge question. And um, the, it is simply this, can I trust the Bible or how can I trust the Bible? Now, usually the question gets asked to me in this, in this kind of frame. Someone will say to me, Mark, how do you know that some guys just didn't get together and write the Bible? I mean, maybe it was just like all night keg or something in Nazareth. And uh, there's some guys that said, hey, let's just pull one and write this book and freak everybody out and, and cause everybody to, to read this book. And that's, that's often the question that gets asked in a way to say, I don't really even know if I have to pay seriously close attention to the Bible, because after all, who can know? Is it a book of accuracy? Is it a, a book that some guys got together and colluded on it and, and whipped it out? So uh, I'm going to tackle that today, and I'm going to do my best, because really what we're going to be talking about is 3,000 years of seriously hard scholarship, and I've got 25 minutes, so you can imagine what that's going to be like. So we're going to go fast here today. I am so pumped to talk about this topic. I have to tell you that partially because it's a great topic. And then on top of that, I just had a couple of double shot espresso uh, lattes from the coffee shop back there. But uh, I am going to move real, real, real fast on this. It's, it's not the normal message that you would hear from me, but I just think this topic is so huge. We, we need to just answer this question squarely and fairly 
can the Bible be trusted? Could I just ask you something before we get started here today? And this is, you know, this is for not, not for you to answer me, but it's for you to answer yourself. And, and that is, where do you go? Who do you look to, to for answers when you have to have serious answers about life? I don't mean like, what car do I buy? Because you can always buy consumer reports and ask your friend how he or she likes her car. But I'm talking about the stuff like, where did I come from? What's my purpose? Who, who, who should I look for in a mate? Um, how, how do I know how to live a life that is going to make a difference? And the most important question of life is what's going to happen to me five seconds after I die? Let me, let me ask you, where do you go for those kinds of questions, questions at that level? I could be talking to somebody here today, and, and I'm just sure someone's going to say, Mark, I, I rely upon science. And, and if you credibly do so, and you, and you do it in a real way in which you, you get your answers by looking at what is repeatable and testable, then I have respect for you. You may come up with different answers than I come up with, but, but my hat's off to you if you really look to science for answers. A lot more people say they do than really do. But if you say, I, I just go by what can be proven, which really, when you think about that, that's pretty challenging because most things that we deal with in life really can't be proven. All we can do is just weigh evidence, just, just as the topic I'm going to deal with today. I can't prove to you the Bible is the Word of God. You just have to ask yourself what is probable, not what's possible, but what is probable. I mean, anything is possible. I mean, for those of you who love watching, you know, shows that centralize around courtroom drama, drama, you know that the, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, the prosecutor there is there to try to convince people of what's probable, and the defense attorney is there hoping that he or she can create some sort of doubt, and, and, and he or she's going to try to show you all the things that might be possible. But at the end of the day, more prosecutors win than defense attorneys, because most often what they're trying to prove is what's probable. So what I want to ask you to look at is here today, what is probable? Where do you go to look for answers? And some people could say, I go to science. Science is my answer. Others of you, you would say, I go to religion. Um, you know, if you're part of a, of, a, of a tradition, if you're part of a religious tradition, you could say, well, my church teaches this, or my priest or my pastor teaches this. And could I just be real honest with you about something? When you deal with the really important issues of life, I hope you have more than New Spring Church says this, and Lord knows I hope you have more than Mark says this. Because if, if somebody tells me, well, my religion teaches this, my first question is who gives a rip? Who cares? Because when it's really, really, really important, you need something more foundational. But it could be, and, and one of the issues that I have religion is that usually when you look at any systematized religion, somewhere along the line, there's a group of people sitting around making it up as they go. And, but you could say, Mark, I find comfort. I seek my religion, the tradition of my, of my church or uh, Buddhism or whatever, you know, Hinduism. I, I seek the tradition of my religion. And that's a, that's a fair answer because some, someone could say, I find the answer there. Many people would say, I don't look very far at all. I just look within. I just ask myself, how do I feel about this? What do I think? Do I get good vibes about this answer? Or do I get bad vibes about this answer? And, and after all, if you're, if you're a postmodern, the, the, the predominant concept, concept in postmodernism is there's really no such thing as absolute truth. I've got my truth. You've got your truth. She has her truth. We all have our own truth. So we just look within and try to come up with whatever works. So maybe that's the answer. Maybe I'm painting with a broad brush, but I think 90% of Americans go to this next one, and that's pop culture. It's like, wh- where's the crowd going? I'm going with the crowd. Let's take a poll. Do you hate polls as much as I hate polls? I hate polls. It's like, I got to find out what everybody thinks so I can know what to think. But that's pop culture, you know? I mean, 
these big questions of life? What does Oprah say? What's, what do Oprah's guests say? What does Oprah's new guests say? Uh, what's in the magazines? What's in television? What's in the movies? We just look at pop culture. Well, most people think this, so I think this. Also, too, for many people, it's probably a little bit of all the above. Of the above. I get a little bit from science, a little bit from religion. I grew up in church, went to Bible school when I was little. I look within and I try to see what everybody else is thinking. And all of that together has sort of become a montage of authority in my life. Well, just to be academically honest with you today, I go to a book, really, honestly. If I want to know what to think about the really important issues of life for me, there is a book that I go to that is foundational, that is bedrock. It is the Bible. I am going to stand before you today and say, if you take that book away from me, I really have no place else to go for firm footing, for firm answers. I would have to be just like everybody else and say, well, I think when people die, they just all go to a nice place, I hope. I would have to say, well, I don't really know what to do about the things that I do wrong. I guess I'll just try to do better. See, if I didn't have the Bible, I would just have to rely on the same problem that everybody else relies on. And I wouldn't have any firm footing for anything. You know, in the last 48, 72 hours... I've done what I often do is I've counseled with people who've gone through some gut-wrenching life experiences. If you take the Bible away from me, I don't have anything to say to these people when they ask me questions about where is my, where's my loved one after they die. Without the Bible, I don't have anything. But you could say, well, Mark, I'm not there. I'm not at the same place you are. And I want to know before I sign on to believing any of the Bible, can it be trusted? And I will stand first in line to say that is a totally fair question. If you say, this is an ancient book, what I want to know is, can it be trusted? And how do I know some guys just didn't get together and make it up as they all went along? Now, I want to steer away from one response, because here's the thing. You could walk away from my talk today and you say, Mark, I'm more convinced than ever that the Bible is the Word of God, or at least I'm open to exploring that. Or you could walk out of here today and say, I think it's a bunch of drivel. But I've, I've examined the evidence, and based on that, I think it's drivel. Those two options are on the table. There is one option that's not on the table. And that is, well, I think it's a good old book. I think there's some good stuff in it. After all, you know, there's some, there's some history. It may be dubious. There's some stories about life. There's some ancient teachings. So perhaps, even though I don't think it's necessarily a credible book, I think it's got some sort of intrinsic value. Maybe it is a good book that deserves my attention. Could I just say to all of us that the Bible does not give us that option? It sets the bar so high, it's either got to be what it claims to be, or I'll stand first in line to say, throw it all in the trash because it's a crock. See, it's like Jesus. Jesus, There are people that say, well, I don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he was a very good man. I think he was a man that had good teachings. He was a good-hearted person. But this thing about him being the Son of God, I don't think that's, that's possible. As C.S. Lewis, the great thinker 100 years ago, said, that option isn't on the table because Jesus made certain claims. He claimed to be the perfect son of God. He claimed to be the only way to heaven. As C.S. Lewis said, those kinds of claims only leave us with three options. The first option is he's a liar. He knew he wasn't and he claimed to be. The second option is he's a lunatic, like a guy who thinks he's a fried egg sandwich. He thought he was the son of God, but he wasn't. He was a nutcase. And the third option is he really was what he claimed to be and he was the son of God. He said, number one, no one would follow a liar. No one should follow a lunatic. And thirdly, there's only one thing to do with the Son of God, and that's to worship him. As that great thinker gave us, there, there is not that option on the table that he was a nice guy that we can consider as one of the world's great leaders. And it's the same thing with the Bible. The Bible makes a claim about itself, and it either lives up to that claim or it's trash. 
And here's the claim. Every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion. Boy, it does that with me. Correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. And I love this. I'm reading out of the message. I love this line. Through the Word, that's the Bible, through the Word we are put together and shaped up for the tasks that God has for us. Now, it would be, I owe it to you to answer the question, do I believe that? Because I'll tell you something. I would not want to listen to a man who was play-acting. I mean, I, don't, I would not want to listen to a minister who stood before you and said that he believed something you didn't believe. You could put polygraphs on me, and I promise you I would pass these polygraphs. I believe with all of my heart the Bible is completely the Word of God. I believe that. I'm convinced of it. I live in this book. You know, I, I've, I'm like, you know, if you're an attorney, we have a number of attorneys here today. You know that when you go into court, you don't cite your own opinion. You cite case law. You cite precedent. That is how I live my life with the Bible, the Word of God. I don't stand before you and say, New Spring Church teaches this. I don't say, I was always taught this when I was a kid. You guys know what it's like. I stand before you and I say, this is what the Bible says. This is what God says. I believe that. And, and here's the thing. In the essence of academic honesty, could I just say right out of the box, there are some faith-based reasons that lead me to believe that. Because there are some who come from, you know, not the faith community, and they would say, well, those of you in the faith community, you only approach things on the basis of faith. We approach things on the basis of science and reason. So I'm going to agree with that, in part, to say there are some faith-oriented reasons why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Number one, it makes sense to me. When I read it, it resonates. I mean, when God says, I'm a sinner, yep, check that box. When God says, I've got a dark side, that anything can be possible on that dark side, check that box. You know, all the things that the Bible say, they just resonate with me. It makes sense to me. I mean, when, you know, when I, I was just, the other day I was just looking at a model of the tendons in the ankle. You ever look at that? I mean, just amazing. I know some of, some of your orthopedic surgeons here, you would, you would know more than I. But just amazing to look at the way God strung the tendons in the ankle. Now, the Bible says supreme intelligence is behind creation. Now, that may not make sense to you. sure makes sense to me. I mean, I just came back from Hawaii several weeks ago, and I was looking at all the tropical fish, all that artwork that God put under the water. Phenomenal. It makes sense to me when I read there was supreme intelligence that guided all this and made all this happen. But it makes sense. Here's one of the things that I'm just going to tell you. When I read the Bible, it feels miraculously cohesive. Whether I tap into it in Genesis or in the Minor Prophets or in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or the Pauline Epistles or the book of the Revelation, it is amazing to me. I live my life in this book, and I'll discover this incredible truth, let's just say, in the writings of Paul. And I'll start scouting around, and all of a sudden, I'll find the same thing in a Minor Prophet who had nothing to do with Paul. He's perhaps writing on a completely different subject, but it's a cohesive message. This is personal. I agree with that. But I believe the Bible is the word of God because it has changed my life. When I look at where I was when I was, say, 20 and 35, and now that I'm 53, my life is a trail of growth, and I'm thankful for that. I'm not everything I want to be, but I'm glad I'm not what I used to be. And God's word has been so powerful. It, it has changed my life. It is still changing my life. And then here's another one that's big for me. Everything it says will happen happens. I mean, whether we're talking about a prophecy because the Bible's filled with prophecies in which these writers wrote and said something big is going to happen out in the future. For instance, Ezekiel wrote and said that um, 
You know, Israel would go into captivity. There would be this protracted long period of time. But in what he called the latter days, they would come back into the land. Many of you were alive in the days when that happened, in 1948, when everything that Ezekiel said was going to happen, happened. So when, when I look at the Bible prophecies, it is just cool to me that everything it says is going to happen, happens. But even outside that context, when the Bible just says, look, if you've got a situation, there's certain human dynamics in play. If this is going on, you can expect this outcome. Every time I look at that, it comes true just like the Bible says. That's one of the greatest tools that I have in counseling. People can tell me a story and say, I'm doing this. This is what my husband is doing. This is what my kids are doing. I'm in this circumstance. I'm in this scenario. I can actually look at them most of the time and say, well, if this continues, this is what's going to happen because everything the Bible says will happen, happens. But all that aside, I would have to say that the reasons I just gave you are faith-oriented. They may be logical in nature, but they are faith-oriented. And and I will tell you that they are not necessarily empirical evidence and that they would sort of rise and fall on my own perception of these things. But here's what I want you to know. That although I believe the Bible is the word of God and that there are faith-oriented reasons why I do, there is an absolute ton of scientific evidence of the claims. Now, it's not my thing. You guys know I'm not a button-down guy. I'm not a scholar. I'm out of my element here today. But I'm going to try to crank some of these out for you to think about for the next few moments. Of moving away from faith and looking at evidence. And when you walk away, you're the jury. You can decide whether, well, I I don't think it's probable what Mark is saying. So I'm going to walk away. And if you've examined the evidence, I have respect for your point of view. But I want you just to take these things into consideration. Let's go to the question du jour. How do you know? It was a frat party. How do you know that an all-night kegger, some guys didn't just get together inside to whip out the Bible? I want to flip that question because it could be that someone is here today and you either are asking that question or you've just heard it asked a lot and it's just nagging at you in the corner of your mind. I want to flip that and I want to ask you how it could possibly happen. Let's talk about the issue of collusion. Is it possible for some guys to get together and write the Bible? First of all, what you should understand is the Bible is not a book. It is a library of books. There are 66 books in the Bible. Verse 39 of what we call the Old Testament of the Old Covenant. And the premise of the Old Covenant is, look, we, we're all messed up. We, we, we're, we're sinners. We cannot stop. I mean, look at all the stories in the Bible. If you look at all the people that the stories are about, it's like these, you know, even when we try to do right, we still screw up. There's got to be some solution. There's got to be some help out there. All the 39 books of the Bible are looking forward to one person coming into our world. We don't know who he is yet. These books are just saying he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. The last 27 books are what we call the New Covenant or the New Testament. And these 27 books say he came and his name was Jesus and he died for our sins. Three days later, he walked out of the grave under his own power. And anybody who puts confidence in him is forgiven of sins and is assured of an everlasting relationship with God. That is the cohesive message of the Bible. But there are 66 books. So it isn't just one book, it's 66. Then it was written by over 40 authors. Now therein we start to ask this question about collusion, about how that could happen, because I can assure you, if I got my 40 best friends who were pastors here and we tried to write a book like the Bible, even with the Bible as a source book, it would be a mess. But there were 40 people, 40 different individuals who wrote down this material And it's got marvelous cohesiveness. But that's not the big one. It was written over 1,600 years. 
How do you know a group of guys didn't get together and ride it? Well, let's ask some hard questions of that. Number one, let us search history to find out who it was who had the idea in the first place. I mean, after all, 1,600 years is a long period of time. I mean, try to go back 1,600 years from 2010. Where does that put us? Dark Ages. Beginning of the Dark Ages. I mean, can you imagine... Who was the one, who was the person who said, hey, I have this incredible idea. Let's just do this long book over a long period of time and write it down and just, you know, freak everybody out. Who was who had the idea? I mean, I would like to know, just searching history, where's the operating manual passed down over 40 generations explaining the overall objective and writing guidelines. And you would think that there would be somebody in history that said, I've got this marvelous idea. And 100 years later, he said, well, we did the best that we could. We got, we got a little bit done here. And 600 years later, well, we're doing our part in this whole thing. I mean, I know there are some of us who believe in conspiratorial kinds of things, but doesn't that just sort of strain? Doesn't that set off your idiot alert? <laughs> I got another question. Where do they come up with all these ideas for all these predictions? Like the one I just mentioned a few moments ago about Ezekiel. Hundreds of predictions about Bible. Who was the one who came up and said, hey, let's just say a bunch of stuff is going to happen. Who, who, who was it who came up with all those ideas? And here's another big one. Why didn't they cut themselves some slack? Because these guys were operating under a premise and a, and a clear-cut guideline that if they prophesied anything that didn't come to pass, they were instantly put to death. If I was just writing down some stuff to say what I think might happen, I think I'd have given myself a little room. Well... A person could walk out of here today and disagree and say, I don't believe it. I think the writers were deluded. Fair enough. But I want to let you know that collusion wasn't on the table. It isn't on the table. I've read a lot of books from a lot of scholars who have critically examined the text. I've read those who examine it from a friendly perspective. I've read those who objectively critically examine it from a contrarian's point of view. Some of those are agnostic, some of those are atheistic, but I got to tell you this, there is no serious objective book of critical analysis of the Bible, there's no serious author who would even begin to hint that collusion was on the table because collusion just wasn't even physically possible. Let me take you to a second place, and that is thorough examination. I did a lot of research for this 25-minute message, and so I want to read a statement to you because this statement's going to have multiple facets to it, and I want to read it. I know this statement is true. If you examine this, I honestly believe you're going to come to these same conclusions, but I want to read it to you just as I wrote it because it contains a whole lot of facets. No book in history has been as thoroughly examined letter by letter by so many people, friends and enemies, by so many fields of sciences, over so many centuries as the Bible. And yet, the Bible remains the most extensively printed, widely translated, frequently read book in the world. Now, that's a serious statement. Again, you could say, Mark, I just hold a completely point of, different point of view, and I'm cool with that. But here's what I want to get across to you. Is there, there is a concept out in the broader community that Christians, people of faith, have some sort of conspiracy of silence going, that we know where the weak spots are. You know, people tell me all the time, Mark, there are so many con contradictions and so many mistakes in the Bible. I live in the book. And, and I want to say, you know, because here's the thing. People have searched the scriptures and examined them for, for centuries looking for the smoking gun. Where is the thing that God says doesn't make sense or isn't provable? And the only thing people can come up with is the supernatural. And it's like, I've never seen the supernatural, and Mama ain't never seen the supernatural, so consequently I don't believe in the supernatural, and it cannot be true. But absent that, 
Where's the smoking gun? I mean, some people will say, well, you know, people of faith, they believe, they believe the earth is flat, not if they read the Bible. Because Isaiah said, Isaiah said God sits on the circle of the earth. There is no smoking gun. No book has been so thoroughly taken apart and put back together. But here's the point. You could, you could say, Mark, I'm just not a person of faith. I'm really struggling with today's talk because I really see things very differently. Could I just get, if there's one point I'd love to get across to you is this, and I'd like to just ask you to examine this. The hardest examination of the Bible has not come from its critics. It has come from its friends. The faith community, the experts, linguistic experts, historical experts, nobody has put the Bible through as thorough testing as its friends. Forgive me for digressing for a moment, but one of the comments that I kind of laugh about, there's a show, I can't remember if it's A&E or the History Channel, one of those programs, there's a show that I catch every once in a while called Banned from the Bible. In other words, these were some books that were written, you know, back during the same time frame as the Bible and the early church. They were really concerned because, after all, what was written was just too hot to handle or too controversial. And so the early church said, whoa, that freaks us out. It just can't be in the Bible. Well, first thing I want to say is, in regard to being too hot to handle, you ever read the Bible? If too hot to handle was a, a criterion, that criterion got failed a long time ago. I mean, there's, you guys know I'm pretty open from what I read to you out of the book of Song of Solomon. But there's stuff in the book of Judges I wouldn't read on stage. If too hot to handle would keep something out of the Bible, well, there's a whole lot of the Bible that I, I, I wonder about. And on top of that, too controversial, I will assure you there's a ton of controversial stuff. For instance, I mean, there's a point long after Jesus resurrected, the church was up and running where Peter was behaving hypocritically. And we're talking about the Peter that was Jesus' disciple, the great pastor, the great leader of the early church. Peter was behaving in a hypocritical way, and the Bible is very clear about how Paul had to climb his case for being a hypocrite. If controversial stuff would keep it from being in the Bible, I promise you, I sure would have left that out. What about the split between the first two missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, who were so mad at each other, they didn't speak to each other, and, and, and they never worked together again as far as we know. If controversial stuff would be a problem, I would never put that in the Bible. Now, here's the deal. The early church was very rigid in their analysis of Scripture, not based on controversy or being hot to handle. Guys, think about this. When I got up and got ready for church, the biggest issue I had was the fog this morning. I mean, there was nobody waiting to arrest me for going to church. I got into my comfortable Climate-controlled Honda Accord, drove to church, got a latte at the coffee shop, walked in here, you know, this comfortable worship center. Back in the first century, just following Jesus meant you would probably be arrested, men and women. Following Jesus meant that your family might have your funeral before, even while you were still alive, and consider you no longer part of their family. It's very likely that you would lose your job, but it wasn't long before people were losing their lives because they were following Jesus. They were hauled off, they were stoned to death, they were beheaded, and it wasn't long before in the Roman world, Christians, men and women and children were being taken out to the Colosseum and fed to the lions for the spectator sport of the people who watched them being ripped apart. Guys, you got to understand Nobody was more rigid or thorough in their analysis of what was being written there than these people who were dying because of what was there. There are sciences of criticism. This is, again, probably more than you want to know. But among those who test the Bible, there is what is called higher criticism and lower criticism. Higher criticism is dealing with origins of text, 
authoring, historical accuracy. There's a whole body of science. There are people that spend their whole lives looking at just one section or one book at the Bible. There's also lore criticism. And, and I'm going to dive deep here, but I promise I'll come up for air before too long. Lore criticism is a science that looks at the actual text itself. Now, you guys know that anytime you look at an ancient, main, ancient book, you're not looking at the original. You know, if you've got the works of Tacitus or Pliny, you know that the originals weren't bought on Amazon, okay? Um, basically, what you have is a manuscript. And, and we do not have the original autographs. If you, if you look at Herodotus, his works, we don't have his original manuscripts. What we have is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And, and so whenever we begin to look at an ancient work and begin to test its accuracy, we realize that we're dealing with manuscripts that were not the original autographs. And there are two questions that govern the whole process of determining whether or not a manuscript is accurate. And the first one is, how many do we have? Do we have three manuscripts or do we have 70? Why is that important? Because if you have 70, you can overlay them, put them side by side and say, okay, we can check and we can determine that nothing has been added here. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. If you think about some of the texts that you had in high school or college, or maybe even some of the, 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 the texts that you use today, you buy the book, but then you make notes in the book, okay? Now, in our case, we can, we can ascertain the difference because we can tell the difference between printing and handwriting. But back in those days, if people had a, a work of an, of an ancient work and they decided to put a little note in the flyleaf or whatever, a hundred years later, somebody could come back and look at that and not know what was the actual or what was an interpolation, what was something that was added. So whenever you're looking at an ancient manuscript, that first question is, how many do we have? So that we can compare and contrast and see what the actual really was. And the second question is this, what's the oldest manuscript available? Because the very first manuscript we have available to us is very, very important. How much time elapsed between the time the writer wrote and our oldest manuscript? Because as I said, you don't have the originals, you have a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Well, Let's think about some of the works that you guys had when you were in college or high school. Take, for instance, Herodotus. We only have eight manuscripts. The oldest one we have is 1,300 years after it was originally written. Aristotle, we only have five. And the oldest we have is 1,400 years after it was originally written. Caesar, his works, we have 10 of those manuscripts. The oldest we have is 1,000 years after it was written. The most commonly held manuscript or manuscript evidence is that for Tacitus, the Greek historian. We have 20 of his works, and the oldest one we have is a 1,000 years after it's written. So how does that stack up with the Bible? Just in Greek, just the New Testament, we have 5,600 manuscripts or pieces of manuscripts. In just ancient languages, we have 24,000. Hey, there's a verse in the Bible, in the, in the Old Testament, where God says he would preserve his word. That's the miracle. I mean, the ancient works, Old Testament, we only have a handful of. And on top of that, I mean, think, for instance, if you're in college, I mean, Caesar's history is just taken as gospel truth. And yet you realize it was written by a historian who worked for Caesar. What do you think the odds are that he's going to present Caesar in the best possible light? 5,600. Just Greek. The oldest... If you were to go over to a museum in Manchester, England, you would discover that there's a part of the Gospel of John that was written in AD 130. John wrote his book in AD 90. That means it was only 40 years after it was written. I didn't know this until I was working for this talk. Let me, let me set this up. I, I've, I've been speaking, as you know, pastor for a lot of years. I probably have 25 years of my work in files somewhere. A lot of it's on computer files. 
And there was stuff before I started using a computer. You guys know that the Bible is in a lot of my sermons. It'll be up on the iMag screens. It's certainly in my notes. If you were to go through my notes, my guess is you could put a lot of the Bible together. You could excerpt, you could pull out all the Bible passages that are in my sermons and look at what you have. You'd have a pretty good record of it. Did you know that you could go back to the early church pastors just in the first two centuries and you could piece together the entire New Testament from their sermons and from their works? Amazing. See, that's the deal. You know, people say, well, there's so many errors in the Bible. Well, you know, here's the thing. When it comes to like variants, that means little difference between one text and the other. Only one out of every 284 letters is a variant. Every, you know, 283 out of 284 letters are identical. And 75% of those variants is just spelling like a Y instead of a, a W. And then there's no variant that affects any doctrine or teaching. There's no variant where one says Jesus was crucified, the other says he got hit by a bus. There's nothing like that. (laughs) But the good thing is you've got all those manuscripts you can put together and say, yeah, this is what the original was. The only thing was, and I'll move on from this pretty quick here, but the only thing was the oldest copy we had of the New Testament, excuse me, the Old Testament, was what we call the Masoretic text. It was about 1,000 years old, A.D. 1,000. So there was a lot of time that elapsed between Malachi's writing, 1,400 years, and our oldest Old Testament text. And that's the way it was until January of 1947. There was a Bedouin boy who was running some goats. And um, the goats were starting to go up the face of the cliff. And he started chasing the goats. And, now, this particular cliff was dotted with thousands of little openings or tiny caves. I know how boys' minds are. He's running the goats, but after a while he got thinking, I wonder if I can hit one of those openings with a rock. And he picked up a rock, and sure enough, he was dead center perfect. He, he threw the rock right inside one of the caves. And instead of expecting to hear the, hearing the dull thud, he expected there was a clinking sound. He told his two cousins who were with him, you know how boys weave stories. He said, I'll bet there's treasure up there. Let's, and they had to take the goats home, but he said, tomorrow, let's, let's come back and look for this treasure. Well, one of his cousins really believed him so much so that he didn't wait for the other two. He went up there first, and he didn't find treasure. Well, the kind he was looking for. There was no gold or silver or anything in there, but when he went there, there were were a lot of clay jars over against the side of the cave. And when they were opened up, there were manuscripts in them. He had just made the most important archaeological discovery of the 20th century, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And now, all of a sudden, the oldest copy of the, New, of the Old Testament isn't a thousand years old. All of a sudden, we have copies of the Old Testament. We have manuscripts of the Old Testament, a ton of these, that go back to a hundred years before Jesus was born. Suddenly, we have manuscript evidence for the Old Testament a thousand years older than we had before this boy was running his goats. Of course, the, the scholars came and glued in thinking, well, who knows, maybe this is going to be the smoking gun that will undo the Old Testament. Well, it didn't. It just corroborated everything we had. And now, all of a sudden, we have some precious possessions we didn't have before. Because for the first time, we have the entire book of Genesis, an Aramaic paraphrase of the book of Genesis. And we have the entire book of Isaiah. Now, look, this is just me talking, but I find that extraordinarily cool because the book of Genesis tells us where we came from. And if there's one book in the Old Testament that clearly lines out who Jesus is, it's the book of Isaiah. I also find it very interesting and curious that that discovery was made one year before Ezekiel's 2,500-year-old prophecy of Israel coming back to the land was actually coming into fruition. It was found in 1947. Israel became a nation in 1948. The bottom line is it just confirmed 
what we had. Guys, I've only given you the tip of the iceberg. There are hundreds, thousands of years of linguistic experts, archaeological finds, and people friendly and people unfriendly to the Bible, looking for the smoking gun, and they're still looking. One more thing, and I'm through. And you guys are so patient to, to listen to this kind of talk. Thank you. How do you know Mark some guys didn't get together and just write it down? I have one question for you. Why would they do it? Why? If the answer to that question is they all retired to the Riviera on their royalties, I'm right there with you. I think there probably was a group of guys that just sat down and wrote it down. If they got something out of it. If, if they were on all the talk shows in Rome, you know, if Caesar called them to the palace and said, hey, you guys wrote this cool book, I want to talk to you. If it made them the big people in town, I, 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 might, I might be right there with you. But let me, let me ask you a question. Do you know what happened to the guys who wrote the Bible? Matthew was stabbed to death with a sword. Mark was dragged to death in Alexandria, Egypt, in front of the idol god, the people of the town worship. Luke, who was Greek, was hanged on an olive tree by pagan priests. John was probably the only one to escape death, but history says he survived being tortured by being scalded with hot oil. Jude was crucified at Edessa. Paul was tortured and beheaded. And Peter, who wrote First and Second Peter and probably is the source for the book of Mark, Peter had to watch his wife executed in front of him right before he was condemned to be crucified. And with Peter's typical flamboyant personality, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. Crucify me upside down. You say, Mark, a lot of people have died for what they believed. I'll, I'll give you that. The guys who flew the planes into the towers, they died for what they believed. But these guys didn't die for what they believed. They died because of what they saw. I mean, think about the way they died. If I saw something and I wrote a book about it and I'm an eyewitness and, and somebody says to me, look, you either recant or we're going to kill Mary Alice right in front of your eyes. I'm probably going to say I didn't see something that I really saw. If somebody says to me, hey, you go back on what you say happened or we're going to crucify you. We're going to drive a nail into your hands and nails into your feet and we're going to let you hang there until you die. You say you follow this man. You say you saw him resurrected. Well, let's just crucify you and see if you come out of the grave. I hate to admit it, but I'm probably going to back down. I'm probably going to say I didn't see something I actually saw. I want to read to you what Peter said. He said in 2 Peter 1, verse 16, we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. When you skip down to verse 17, the voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. 
Because of that experience, verse 19, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. That's the Bible. You must pay close attention, Peter says, to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place. It's one of my favorite lines in the Bible. Until the day dawns, that means until Jesus comes, and the Christ, the morning star, shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. Peter said we didn't make it up. Verse 21, or from human initiative, wasn't our idea. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. And they paid for it with their blood. If you're holding a Bible in your hand, and I'm sorry I'm in overtime, I'll finish as fast as I can. If you're holding a Bible in your hand, for some reason this book has always been expensive. Whether it was the original writers who gave their lives for writing it, or whether it was the translators about 500 years ago who thought it was important for you to have a copy in your hand. It is amazing to me that those who persecuted the people for writing the Bible was the Roman secular world, but by the Middle Ages, it was the church, so-called the Church of Jesus Christ. If you go back to Europe in the 1500s or even 1300s, there, 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 were, there were church leaders who said, look, everybody needs a copy of the Bible. Well, in those days, only, it was only appropriate. In fact, it was the law that really the only Bible that exists pretty much was in the hands of the church leaders because the church was doing some really screwy stuff. And there were those leaders who said, no, 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 every follower of God needs the Bible in his or her own hand because if they had it, they would know that you don't have to go through a church to have a relationship with God. You can have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You don't have to buy your way out of purgatory because purgatory doesn't exist. You don't have to go through a priest because if you're a man or woman who is a follower of Christ, you are a priest. The Bible says a kingdom of priests yourself. And these guys, leaders of the church were saying, everybody needs a copy of the Bible in their own hands. There was a guy named John Huss. He was a Czechoslovakian. He was a great man. He lived in the 1300s. And the leader of the church. He was a college. He was a professor at the University of Prague. He was just a great thinker. And he was so, he was so pivotal in getting the Bible in the common people's hands. But he, they, they took him to trial, and he was mocked and made fun of. They, they took shears and cut out the top of his head. And they put a, a bishop's hat on him with pictures of demons drawn on him. And they tied him to a stake. And they burned him at the stake. And do you know what they used to burn him at the stake for kindling? They used the stuff he had translated from the Bible. They used it to set him on fire. And there was William Tyndale, the great, you know, the, the great British Christian leader who said, man, everybody needs a copy of the Bible in their own language. And he was a scholar. He was both a graduate of Oxford and Cambridge. He could, have, he could have lived his life as a cushy scholar, but he spent his entire life on the run because he was always translating the Bible. In fact, the King James Version of the Bible, which is the one that was earliest translation for English pretty much, 80% of it is William Tyndale's work. They dragged him to a stake, strangled him, and set him on fire. But his last words were, God opened the eyes of the King of England. Five years later, you could buy a copy of the English translation of Scripture on the streets of London. All I'm saying to you, it's always been expensive. This is not a frat party. I mean, whatever you think about the Bible, it wasn't a bunch of freaks who got together and said, let's write something down and fool everybody. These are people who paid for it with their blood. These are people that went on record and said, we saw it, and we're not going to back down even if you take our lives. I'm telling you, if you have a Bible in your lap, you have a miracle, you have something very expensive, you have a connection to God. It is why I stand on it as the source for all my big questions. Thank you for being here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. May we treasure it. 
May it be real to us. And Father, if someone's here today and, and just not accepting this point of view, please, don't, please just help them to be open enough to explore. And I'll thank you for everything that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. One more thing, and I promise we'll, we'll leave in a little bit. I said the message of the Bible is for you to have a relationship with Christ. And if you're here today, you say, Mark, I know God loves me. I know I can't save myself. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. I want to give you a chance to pray to invite him into your life. These aren't magic words, but I'm going to pray a prayer with you. And if you're ready to invite Jesus into your life, why don't you pray with me? Dear Father, I know I can't save myself, but your Bible says that Jesus died for me in my place, that his blood became a payment for my sins. Today, I accept your gift of eternal life, and I invite the risen Jesus to become my Savior and King. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name.